SequelCast 2 and Friends is part of the Greenlit Podcast Network. For more information, go to greenlitpodcast.com. Everybody across the land, here's a special from SequelCast, though I don't know what it's gonna be about. Maybe Woody Allen, maybe Spike Lee. special, a show talking about movie and pop culture topics at large. I'm Matt Bradley Shurgy. With me is Alex. Hello, hello, hello. And we are talking about a, a topic near and dear to our hearts. It is about how the uh, blood flows through the ventricle to the main artery. Wait, no, that's not it. What's the topic? <laughs> oh, today's topic is brought to you by Lost Films. It's a known statistic that over 80% of films made and produced prior to the year 1930 are thought to be lost. However, after the halcyon days of early talkies, there is a lot of feature films that are either truncated, edited, or lost to time. Some of these include the works of Orson Welles or Michael Cimino. However, there is also films on an international scale as well, many of which are lost or thought to be thought to be lost. Our hope is to uncover some of these hidden gems and maybe restore some of these lost classics to their proper posterity. I am Alex Miller, and thank you for joining us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, film preservation, it's something where, you know, film is a physical object, and it degrades over time, and to, to save money, uh, both film studios and TV studios and, and warehouses and whatnot will um, have in the past, and maybe still continue to do so, to destroy film, old films no one, they presume no one cares about, to make room for new films. And we, we've lost, you know, th things as uh, perhaps trivial as episodes of Doctor Who from that, but also um, films from, you know, such great directors as Todd Browning or uh, Orson Welles and, and all sorts of things. Yeah, there's um some of the like some of the big ones. You have something like uh, London After Midnight. You have westerns from John Ford, like Bucking Broadway is another big one. Um, one of the early Fritz Lang films, and you know these are made. They're ma they're in the can and they get screened, and then for you know whether or not it's a combustion issue or just it gets destroyed by the studio. Some of these movies are lost or are thought to be lost. Um, like The Passion of Joan of Arc by Carl Dreyer was a long thought to be lost film, and it was found in a uh, mental asylum, I believe, in Sweden, of all places, uh, I think in like the 70s or 80s or something like that. So you have these stories behind the stories of these movies, and it kind of becomes like, you know, the story of these, you know, lost films can almost, is almost more interesting than the movies themselves in some cases. Um, and this goes across the world. Uh, there's a, like a Japanese King Kong parody called Kingu, which is uh, another thought to be lost series or 
a great Shanghai production uh, epic serial called The Burning of the Red Lotus Monastery. Um, there's just some still shots that exist today, but that's another big uh, lost film. So, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on. I never even thought about international, but, you know, I mean, yeah, infamously with Japan, almost all their silent film things are lost because the repository for their uh, old films uh, happened to be in Hiroshima. And after Hiroshima got bombed in World War II, uh, bye-bye Japanese silent film cinema. Oh, yeah, they're like, we lost 80% of stuff prior to 1930. They lost like 99.9% of their, you know... (laughs) Sure. I mean, and part of this is because the, the older film was more uh, brittle, more uh, flammable, and you have to keep it under certain conditions. And they are good film preservation societies, but it will never completely preserve anything. And, and also, I mean, this um, we talked about the soft mic, but with, with home video stuff, too, think about all the stuff that you can't get on streaming that's on home video or think how much fewer things are on DVD than VHS. Oh, yeah. And there's so many labels out there. I mean, like, geez, you, you've seen my collection virtually and it's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And with all the different boutique labels and stuff, like that, there's still distributors and laborers out there. I'm like uncovering like 88 films. You know, I just discovered them. Uh, Hong Kong Rescue, uh, you know, uh, Third Window. You get this great Japanese movies. I mean, Indicator. There's so many labels out there and so many things to discover and behold and treasure and um you know every other day someone's you know unearthing a lost classic like um this great documentary dawson city lost time they found in 1978 like 500 reels of film underneath a freaking hockey rink of all places and it was like you know infomercials and, and newsreel footage and uh like like silent like short silence that were thought to be lost from like dw griffith and like these lillian gish movies and it's fascinating and it's fascinating because these things can endure being buried underneath the ground for freaking decades but also they can't some films don't make it just by sitting in a warehouse by simply combusting because they're made out of very flammable materials yeah there's a um a a fella i don't have his uh name in front of me from it lives out here by me in Portland, Oregon, uh, we have a, a theater called the Hollywood in um, Northeast Portland, and he has one of the largest collections of uh, 70s kung fu movies in the United States. Oh, and in, in certain circles, he's so well known that uh, the RZA contacted him and visited to see his collection and check stuff out. Is it Rick uh, Myers? It could be. Yeah, I, yeah I, I don't. I have I have his book actually. Oh, that's awesome! Yeah, yeah, he's it's, great. Uh, the the theater is pretty cool too. It's two theaters. Uh, they have the main theater, then they have a smaller one upstairs. They might have added a third one, and they even um, they have nonprofit status, and they even were able to raise enough money through Kickstarter to um, save. Uh, it might be the only local independent video rental store in Portland, Movie Madness to make oh. that into a nonprofit as well. And they added a small movie theater in that rental place. Oh, that's uh, amazing. I so, I mean, it. yeah, it, it's, it's, it's really cool. But, I mean, yeah, film preservation is near due to our hearts. If you want more information about that kind of stuff, uh, and also the controversies of filming on digital versus film, check out Side by Side, which is a great uh, movie direct uh, with uh, Keanu Reeves as the host. Um, and you get some great David Lynch moments, too. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly. Um, I mean, so let's, let's start talking about some of these lost movies here. Uh, one of these is, you know, there is a theatrical version that came out, but the original one 
with the test screenings um, was quite a bit different. And I don't know if the original exists. Uh, this movie, I think we should cover on the show because it's a, a sequel in a way, kind of a sequel in spirit. It is 1997's Fierce Creatures. Oh, this is a sequel to Fish Called Wanda, right? Yeah, I mean, so it's the same main actors, and it's it's written by the the same people, John Cleese and Ian Johnston, or Johnstone, and um, but they play different characters. So I mean, yeah, it's a very you see this every once in a while. I guess it was kind of like how, um, oh boy, uh, Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor did all those movies, right? Where they're together, where they're not. Yeah, they almost they're feel kind like of sequels, feel but like... not really. It's yeah. thematically right um, connected. Uh, or you could, or like the, not quite like the Bob Hope Road movies, but but anyhow, you know, the version that came out in theaters was PG-13, or no, it actually was rated, why is not the rating on here? It might have been rated R, but it was pretty soft R, or if not a PG-13. And uh, the original version of the film had a completely, uh, the director was Fred Chapezi, no. Hold on, I'm looking at this stuff. Reception. Um, I mean, like John Cleese hates this film so much. He ah. says if he could, in an interview in 2008, and, and I mean, he was one of the writers, right? And he stars in it and produced it. <laughs> and he, he was asked by his friend, uh, director and restaurant critic, Michael Winner, um, not, not the director of Death Wish, I want to stress, uh, right. s- saying, if you could do anything differently with your life, what you do? And he said, well, I wouldn't have married Alice Faye Eichelberger and I wouldn't have made Fierce Creatures. Wow. (laughs) Um, When this movie came out, Jamie Lee Curtis, like shit on it on the press, which you almost never see from actors in general. She was like, some people will like it, like, (laughs) which is a pretty (laughs) big diss. Uh, When you're on the publicity tour, the whole point you're trying to say like, oh, the movie's great. It's so much fun. And right. (laughs) So the original version of this had a totally different director was a lot um darker i don't want to say like hardcore exactly but the original director was robert young who who was a, a british guy who did i haven't heard about like splitting airs uh infinite world of hg wells mm. uh, it's just a lot of like uh the worst witch. Oh my God. That's the one with the Tim Curry music number. <laughs> oh, and, and, and anyhow, you know, he's done uh, mainly known as a leading director of British TV drama, like soldiers home and hammer house, a horror vampire circus. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, so, I mean, he, he's a guy with a good pedigree and, uh, and such, but regardless the, the test screening stuff, I hate the damn test screening idea, but um, you know, they right. said, Oh, this movie isn't funny. It's too hard to understand. And so they they refilmed pretty much the whole thing. And the best source I have on why the original cut was different was Michael Palin, who at this point in his career, he was still in a a few mainstream movies here and there, but also busy doing all his documentaries, uh, which which he still continues to do for uh, BBC. They're, you know, they're excellent. Um, And he released three volumes of his personal, uh, edited versions of his personal diaries. And he goes into great length about how the original version was a lot funnier. And in fact, he was like so upset with changes made that he almost considered not coming back to, to do the reshoots, but he did because John Cleese was a friend and, you oh, know, wow. they've been together since the Python days, uh, if not before. So I, I don't think Curse Creatures is an awful film, but I would love to see that original version. And as far as we know, it's, it's lost. I, people will ask John Cleese about it here and there in interviews. 
Um, and that's a lost film I think I, I would love to see. And, and we're seeing like kind of a renewed interest in director's cuts right now with the somewhat ridiculous like four hours <laughs> Snyder cut of <laughs> Justice oh, League boy. on HBO Max. <laughs> yeah, I guess uh, I guess we couldn't tiptoe around that one. I mean, yeah, I guess I kind of have to bring up the Snyder cut. Um, well, but, yeah. Do you have any thoughts about that? Or I haven't seen not, it yet. That's an example of a lost film that was released but has a lot of toxicity and uh nuttiness around it oh yeah without a doubt i mean just i mean just the fact that like the furor of of like you know twitter wrath and reddit posts and and, and you know nerd <laughs> culture like actually like got the studio to remake a freaking or a recut a fucking movie is kind of blowing my mind um Hey, I mean, hey, works for them. You know, hey, they got their way, right? Uh, a lot of people seem to like it. Uh, I might watch it someday. Maybe I'll like it too. But I fucking hated the 2017 version. I can tell you that much. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but, yeah, there's, uh, you know, technology is always evolving, and it always allows us to, um, you know, recapture these lost things. I know there's efforts to um, restore the Magnificent Ambersons, one of the most magnificent um, you know, compromised films of all times with the infamous Lost Reel, which is, I mean, a foregone conclusion at this point. I think, like, once Criterion released Magnificent Ambersons on Blu-ray, that's, like, a pretty definitive release, you know? So once that happened, yeah. I was excited because it came out, but I was kind of like, ah, shit, this means we're never going to get that reel, right? <laughs> well, we were but, talking hey, about this on, on Facebook. There, There's some people trying to really do a push for it, and there's rumors of a complete print existing somewhere, in Brazil, and I mean, why it would be in South America is Orson Welles, uh, after filming Magnificent Ambersons, had another gig in, perhaps for a documentary or something, in South America. Yeah, it was supposed to be about um, Rio de Janeiro and, like, the Carnival. And, uh, yeah, where Robert Wise was cutting Ambersons, uh, the studio was like, oh, Orson, we want you to do this awesome thing in Rio, blah, 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 blah. And it was kind of like to get him out of town, it felt like. And mm -hmm. then they have Robert Wise, who would be him, became a terrific director in his own right. He was also a terrific editor, but just because of studio mandates. And Orson was sending notes and letters and telegrams, basically, trying to like direct from Rio in the 40s, which is obviously insane. Um, yes. and, I mean, uh, think how long that would take back then. Oh, it's, it's, it's nutty. So, yeah, the studio just took the scissors to it and just... I think the original cut was like 130 minutes or something, which is pretty long for the time. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a damn tragedy. Cause, um, yeah, I, I just, only, I can only imagine what kind of film this looked like, uh, Orson Welles being such an expressionist director. And then like the, like after Kane, I mean, like all, every, every movie of his was a struggle. Obviously that's a whole category unto itself. But, um, we just recently had in 2018, um, the other side of the wind. We thought that was another one lost to the time, you know? And then they successfully cobbled it together and were able to the audio and get all, you know, get everything together. And it looks terrific and it feels like a fully formed, as much as a late Wells film does, I can feel fully formed, a uh, fully formed project of a thought to be lost movie. But there's also, I mean, in the Wells, the well of Wells, the Wells well, um, there's uh, this, there's like this ocean adventure looking film called The Deep. I uh, did a Merchant of Venice. There's a Don Quixote. Uh, there's this film called The sure. Dreamers. It looks really cool. And for many reasons, they are thought to just kind of be like, you know, the impossible to get back together. Well, 
I mean, again, though, we said the same thing about the other side of the wind, and we could very well have Orson Welles', Welles you know, Merchant of Venice or The Deep come out, which would be so cool. Uh, yeah, just, uh, as the saying goes, never say never. And, and I'm kind of encouraged by, um, although this is like TV and not uh, film, still the same kind of topic, um, with the, the BBC, uh, kind of as we were saying earlier, quite a lot of their old TV programming, instead of saving it on the original uh, um I think it might have been videotape or maybe maybe uh, some whatever format it was in. Because uh, sometimes they, they film stuff straight to tape to save money. They just decided to destroy the stuff instead of saving it. But mm -hmm. for some of for Doctor Who, which is a really beloved series uh, that's been on forever, some of the old episodes, like people were able to track down only the audio tracks. And so yeah. there's been releases of like they would do like an animated version and use the original audio and or a mixture of the original audio and some re-recorded stuff. There's also been like they've adapted them into uh, some of them into radio plays, which is still a huge uh, art form in in England. I wish we'd have more of that in the states. That's just, that's really something special about a uh, fully produced um, radio play with uh, the sound effects and everything. Um, it, it's but but anyhow, you know that those are pretty unique uh, ways to save lost films. If maybe the whole film doesn't exist, you could still do something with it or there's like um i mean the most infamous example of a lost film that is allowed to come out 20 something odd years after the death of its creator is <laughs> jerry lewis's the day the clown cried oh yeah i knew we were gonna get to this one mm. and they say what 2024 right this is when they'll like i think so yeah that, that's not that long yeah. it'll be I in know, my yeah. lifetime i wasn't sure if that it would be uh but yeah uh, if all goes well, which I don't see, it's kind of grim. Uh, anyhow, but yeah, I mean, so the day the clown cried, Jerry Lewis, I, it doesn't get enough credit, I think, for. I mean, he invented a lot of um, film innovation stuff with like watching playback live on on set. That was a Jerry Lewis invention, and that's yeah, used that's all really over cool. the place. Uh, and uh, I mean, I think he's a he's a great director. I, I I'm slowly exploring his films. I got a good deal on a, on a box set from a few years ago, and he did so much. And um, but but this movie, Day the Clown Cried, it's the uh, <laughs> I I guess you could probably do this somehow and have it work. But it's a Holocaust um, drama comedy sort of where he plays a, a clown. Uh, yeah. That. You kind of got a ver. It's I think it's inspired by a true story, but you kind of got a version of this with Robin Williams' Jacob the Liar, which was a right. uh, remake of a of a foreign film. Uh, I think I'm just going off the top of my head. Um, I think also um, uh, it's a it's a beautiful life. Is that the Roberto Benigni? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Similar in, in uh, yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah, like using comedy in the Holocaust, which is you know yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> there, there was that British sitcom about Hitler that only had one episode. Oh my did, goodness! You're did right, you see yeah. that one? That, that's on YouTube. I that's know of um, it, yeah. That, that's quite something. Uh, that's almost like uh, that's my Bush, like totally the <laughs> Comedy right, Central uh, Bush, crazy. George W. Bush sitcom on, on the South Park thing. But but and anywho, back to the the, the um, day the clown cried. You know Jerry Lewis would, didn't release it. The whole thing was filmed. Um, Harry Shearer who was on the cast of Saturday Night Live twice. I think he's only one of the only people to do that and is maybe best known for doing voices on The Simpsons like Mr. Burns and Smithers and Dr. Fibbert. Mm -hmm. 
uh, claims to have seen a bootleg VHS of it and described it as like unwatchable and it's like watching something in slow motion. And I'm sure everyone was probably high at the time smoking doobies. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> which you might need to, to, to get through such a thing. It, there was like or, a French documentary, right? Uh, that, that popped up online that has someone on YouTube cobbled together maybe 15 or 20 minutes. And it's a mixture of onset interviews and some scenes from the film that I think is the most we've seen to date. Yeah, yeah I think that's about or who knows, you know, I have this weird feeling that, like, say this movie, let's say, let's say the, you know, shooting was completed, it was edited and tuned up and released. Let's say this movie happened, right? And it was released mm -hmm. in the 70s when it was filmed. And it's a complete commercial failure and everything like that. And then I feel like this is one of those things that, like, would get reevaluated in time. Where, yes. like, now people would probably appreciate this, like, Jerry Lewis just being way ahead of his time, and this is, like, this pioneering film that, like, was just maligned by poor reputation or something like that. You know, it could it could be this, like, you know, fucking undiscovered classic for all we know. I mean, if you, if like you said, there's so many, like, uh, boundary-pushing films out there, maybe, maybe Jerry Lewis is just ahead of his time and people didn't get his vision, or maybe it's a fucking mess. Um... We'll, we'll just have to wait till 2024. So I wonder, though, in 2024, is this like, you know, when they release like the like articles about like the Kennedy assassination, do they just want to like bury it till they think people lose interest? You um, know, like... they're, they're going to have to have, I think, a pretty significant investment for this thing to come out because of how infamous it is. There, there was, oh, th this might have been 10 years ago, perhaps longer. Uh, Patton Oswalt and some of his buddies did live script readings um, with, with with their comedian friends and and stuff of like unreleased things, or, or sometimes they do it for already movies that are already out as kind of like fundraiser things, right? And and yeah. they did it a few times for the day the clown cried, but uh, it got so popular it got talked about in the L.A. Times, and um, unfortunately uh, Jerry Lewis's lawyers <laughs> came up when they did it came up on stage with like a and made a big dog and pony show out of it. And so they spent their entire last set doing it, just basically making fun of Jerry Lewis's attorney. Oh my God. Really? Huh? Yeah. Cause it's like, you can't do this. Um, oh, that's maybe great. there's a bootleg tape of that script rating or something. And you can find the screenplay online if you know where to look like that. That's not terribly hard, but, yeah. but to see this film uh, would really be something uh, you mentioned, like the reaction to it. I think you would get, It'd be a pretty, um, I think it's it's still going to be controversial. I think, of course, anything about the, the Holocaust, um, it's a touchy subject, rightfully so. And I think you get people going, how can they make a comedy in the Holocaust? And it was like, it was made in the 70s. Like, you have to, I, I believe, or was it the 70s? I'm, um, I think so, yeah. On the date. But, I mean, you have to, I think it's always very important to consider context of, of when things were made. Right. And the other and, thing too is that I don't think yeah. it's a, I don't think it's necessarily comedy. I think people no, no, no. just see Jerry Lewis and hear they hear Jerry Lewis Holocaust and Clown, and they're like, oh, how dare he? You know, it's like it, the story's a pretty sobering thing and not unbelievable, I guess. You know what I mean? Like it's mm -hmm. a pretty harrowing, uh, some harrowing shit. Um, I guess for you, for those of you who don't know, where Jerry Lewis plays a clown in a in a Holocaust camp and is. Um, uses that as a way to like calmly lead children into the gas chambers, um, you know, and obviously that's going to bring up horrible uh, moral dilemma on the main character. So yeah, I don't know, like it's right. I mean, there was a, a movie not that long ago 
um, might have been even nominated for an Oscar, maybe called, I think, The Boy with the Striped Pajamas. Yeah, that, I remember that, yeah. That had some similar stuff going on. And what, I mean, the title people were, uh, some of the, I think some of the critics were joking, like the title is Honey, I Gas the Kid. Oh, which Jesus. Which is awful. <laughs> yeah, I know, So, right? I mean, yeah. they're going to continue to make Holocaust movies and that you had children in, or, or anyone, frankly, in these concentration camps or concentration camps at all is disgusting. But, yeah. I mean, uh, you want to talk about controversial, um, like, Uwe Boll, for God's sake, did uh, a movie called Auschwitz. Oh, yeah. That oh, um, I'm writing about for an upcoming book that did come out, but... Um, it barely got a release. Oh, I can only imagine. Even, even yeah. less so than a lot of his things. Like I, I think right. it played film festivals because of the topic. But mm-hmm. uh, you want to see some uh, red hot uh, rhetoric and and st- just start googling like reviews of that. It's um, quite something. I believe you can watch that for free on Amazon Prime. Uh, yeah, there's um. See, like if you read the 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 story of the day of the clown card, this sounds like like a Lars von Trier movie, right? Like. Oh my God, you're right. Yeah, you know what I mean. Just like, oh, who's the one guy that's gonna <laughs> go there? You know, it'd be him, right? The the uh, former song Pontrive of cinema. But um, hey, I'm 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 ready to watch this thing. I I just I I always like maligned films. You know, like I'm a big fan of William Friedkin's Sorcerer. I'm a big fan of Heaven's Gate. I mean, look, um, Jojo Rabbit won the screenplay, won the Oscar for screenplay, right? Yeah. So you know, I think we're ready for some more controversial Holocaust films. Jesus. Certainly. And to move off of controversial Holocaust films, I know, yeah. what's another, what's a choice from you about a lost film? What's another one that you've always um, uh, want to see come to life? So there's this, this, I'm pretty sure we'll never be able to see this one, but I want to mention it. It's a Joseph von Sternberg production. Um, so interesting bit of trivia. It's called the woman of the sea. It's a Joseph von Sternberg movie. If you're familiar with his work, he makes, he would make these very big, operatic, sumptuous, uh, very deeply textured, uh, very indulgent movies. Um, and it was produced by none other than Charlie Chaplin. It's the only movie that he produced oh. that was his own. Um, huh. So apparently, you know, it was a very much a Joseph von Sternberg film, very, you know, big, grandiose, operatic kind of, you know, epic. And it had a 10-minute long, uninterrupted traveling shot which is unprecedented for the, I think, like early, uh, late silent era. And Charlie Chaplin fucking hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it, ordered it to be destroyed. He held on to one last negative up until like the 70s, and he destroyed the last negative to reclaim production costs. Um, And it's like, you'd think as an artist, right? Yes. Charlie Chaplin being a, you know, he's one of the first things you think of when you hear the word, right? you think you'd have some semblance of like respect or like decorum, you know what I mean? Like, Hey, I don't mm-hmm. like it, but that's his vision. So like, you know, maybe he'd shelf it. Don't destroy it. But he just, something wants to happen between them or something. I don't know. Maybe they're, you know, they're both players, I guess. Maybe they're beefing over. I don't know. Maybe something's going on. I don't know. But, it's just, it's, he wanted this thing done and done. It is, um, I think there's like some still shots and production shots and stuff, but yeah, I, I don't think we'll see a woman of the sea anytime soon, but an interesting story. Nonetheless, um, Hey, maybe it'll inspire someone to, you know, script a meta film about the production of it. 
Retrograde Amnesia is a comprehensive podcast about classic Japanese RPGs. Each season, we cover a single game, chapter by chapter, beat by beat. Season 1 covers Xenogears. Season 2 covers Chrono Cross. Each episode, we play a section of the game and unpack the story, mechanics, music, and themes. Also, our post-production AI companion, the FakeNet, fills us in on the finer details we may have missed. Initializing FakeNet. Yes. They need me for everything. Find Retrograde Amnesia at greenlitpodcasts.com. Hey there, this is Jeremy Parrish, and if you're a fan of classic video game soundtracks, or if you just love 20-minute rock epics about war-ready armadillos that battle Catholicism, you should listen to Alexander's Ragtime Band. Join the power trio of myself, Elliot Long, and James Eldred each month as we talk about the most pretentious music of all, progressive rock, right here on the Greenlit Podcast Network. I mean, certainly, uh, I mean, speaking of metafilms, uh, something that they were going to start production of it before COVID, and uh, and then we had you know the past year of the pandemic. But I, I think hopefully it'll get made. Um, the production company that Elijah Wood is part of that did the um, HP Lovecraft thing. Oh yeah, that's right. Uh, I don't remember the name. Is but... uh, yeah, uh, the name escapes me. But they they are helping to produce. Uh, a screenplay that I think has been part of the Hollywood blacklist for a while, which uh, for context, the blacklist is a list every year that they've been doing in LA for a while where it's like the best, like unproduced screenplays. And some of these you can read online. Like it's really, and that's a really interesting topic to dig into, but there's a, a biopic of Roger Corman called the man with the X-ray eyes about oh. him getting high off his ass on LSD to influence huh. the making of the trip. Nice. Featuring which none is, other than Uncle Dennis. Woo! That's right. Uh, which is one of his most um, surreal films, uh, to put it oh, totally, mildly. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that would be a, in, in one of the, they did a live script reading of it recently, and they had Bill Hader play the lead. And I oh, think he'd, cool. be, he'd be an inspired choice, um, you know, whether they haven't cast the movie or anything. But, and the director, uh, best of all, would be Joe Dante. Who That's perfect, got, yeah. got his career uh, editing trailers. In fact, uh, Roger Corman, who still is, uh, I don't know how heavily involved he is, but he, you know, he he does production in all his films through his uh, companies. It's mainly like Sci-Fi Channel monster movies nowadays. Um, mm. Still says Joe Dante was the best trailer cutter he ever had. Yep, uh, Joe Dante and um, another director from the from the New World alum, who I think is criminally underrated, is Alan Arkush. Yeah, Alan Arkish yes. and um, Joe Dante were like the kind of like the underlings for so long for for um, for New World, and you know had these terrific careers. But I really, I really feel Alan Arkish is a very underrated director. Uh, Hollywood Boulevard is a terrific film. Yeah, he, he co-directed, co-directed that uh, with Dante. Uh, in um, uh, Rock and Roll High School is another one, which is so much fun. Of course, uh, Cla- modern yeah. modern classic. Yeah, um, shout out to Alan Arkish. <laughs> definitely. Um, cool. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, that's, uh, neat. yeah, I guess another choice for me of, of an unmade film, um, this is, I think this is in the wheelhouse. This is something that was never filmed, but it was a script. Is that okay for this topic? Yeah. Okay. So after, uh, in, in the same year as, is when uh, these movies came out, but Mel Brooks's Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles came out in the same year, mm-hmm. which is shocking. 
Uh, I mean, these were made nearly back to back to one of the best comedy, some of the best comedies of all time. And Gene Wilder and Mel Brooks had the real strong working uh, relationship. And um, Ian Frankenstein was such a hit and so much fun to make that Gene Wilder uh, wrote a script and uh, brought it to Mel Brooks. And it would be uh, Gene Wilder in the lead again. It would be another horror pastiche, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Oh, yeah, Gene Wilder, directed by Mel Brooks. Can you imagine what a film that would have been? Oh, and, man, that would be great. I mean, because no one can freak out like Gene Wilder. <laughs> yeah, and just coming off that high of um, Basil Saddleson, especially Young Frankenstein, and those yeah. are like, those are directed movies. It's not like, you know, just yes. kind of point shoot, whatever. Like, he directed the hell out of those, Young Frankenstein especially. Like, that's a beautiful film to look at. Like, the dude's an artist, obviously. Like, so if coming off the high of that and then going into a Jekyll and Hyde, that would have been such I'm... a wild flick to see. Unfortunately, Mel Brooks at that time was, was kind of in his own head and considered himself a Hollywood star. And like, I'm going to look for things where I'm playing the lead. And after those films, he did like silent movie and other things that uh, I think they have their merits, in particular high anxiety. But oh, yeah. it, it wasn't quite the same as, um, I mean, his his early stuff uh, to, to quote uh, the... Um, Stardust Memories, I like the early funny ones. Yeah, But I exactly. think that applies to almost any director, right? It, it, if you oh, really it's always the early the, stuff. Uh, a tour theory, the original, the, the early stuff is more interesting, although now and then you have these fun surprises. Um, but yeah, I think that's something I, I would have loved to have seen. Uh, okay, so what's another one for you? Let's do a few more of these. I'd say... Um... There's, I'm going to go back to China. There's this fascinating lost kind of like Wuxia epic film uh, that was lost. And the story is hilarious. It's called uh, Mulan Joins the Army. So it would oh, be a, okay. yeah, Mulan, uh, you know, elaboration of the Mulan legend. Um, and they shot it. They had like 400 extras of soldiers, you know, horses and all that epic shit. And the, the, comp- uh, the com- the competing uh, distribution studio, or to have you, uh, Taiwanese Studios, made a film called Mua Mulan Joins the Army and beat them to the punch. And then the, so the studio <laughs> said, fuck it, shelved it. And now it's a lost film. And I guess it was superior to the, the I guess, what you'd call it, the knockoff version that came out that beat them to the theaters. And again, it's another frustrating, like, oh, what the hell? Like, <laughs> you have this jerk studio, you know, kind of, uh, you know, pull a fast one on you. And uh, the title even, like, Mua Mulan joins the RV, not Mulan joins the RV. It's such a slap in the face. It's unbelievable. Um, and just, uh, I mean, if anyone has listened to this or knows me, knows that I'm a huge Hong Kong cinema nerd. And um, even going back to the 40s and 30s, the sound stuff's really wild. And you have some really cool special effects, like a lot of the first special effects were drawing directly on film negatives to have, like, flying swords and stuff. So mm-hmm. I always like these innovations in these early uh, Hong Kong joints, or I guess technically I think this would be a Shanghai joint if um, we're getting technical. But, uh, yeah, that would just that's something I, w- I would love to see one of these days. Who knows, right? If we ever will. Yeah. Um, you know, thanks to the efforts of, of um, Frank Criterion is the main one that, that comes to mind, but there's all kind of other people... Some of which even like uh, uh, amateurs and, and, and stuff on on YouTube sometimes like they find really interesting finds. So it's oh yeah, there's um, a Flickr Alley too. That's another one. Oh really? Okay, yeah, cool. They stuff. yeah they have they they have a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. Do they do like grindhouse stuff or what's their focus? It's like old like the old Sherlock Holmes serials from like 1916. 
Oh, wow. Jeez. Um, okay. Yeah, like old-timey uh, A Page of Madness, which is a great Japanese flick, if you uh, ever check it out. Great silent mm. horror film. Really wild stuff. Um, like the old Lon Chaney Hunchback flicks. Like a lot of like kind of silence that were kicked around and maybe not taken care of so well. They restore and release. Right. I was... I mean, some of the restorations, especially of late, with all the the high resolution film scanning you can do now. Uh, I mean, it, it's it blows my mind that you can walk into a Best Buy and now they're selling eight key eight K televisions, even though there's no content for it really. I haven't um, even touched four K yet. Jesus. I, I know, I know. Yeah, they they have to have another sticker to put on the box, right? But because we, right. on on the other hand, because of you know we have computers get better and better, it can scan stuff at higher and higher resolutions. I think it, it it's great for uh, film preservation, of course. And I wonder what do you have an idea, Alex? What they're um, scanning in film nowadays for film preservations? Because it used to be 4K, and that was quite some time ago. And then 8K, and I guess 16K is that the next? <laughs> I guess if we're going in multiples of four, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, there's because I I I I can go up to 2K, and that was kind of my thing. Um, because those, those were what a lot of the labels I buy movies from go for, like Criterion, Kino, yes, Arrow, yes, stuff like sure. that. It says on the back of the box from a 2K yeah. release. 2K I, I, I haven't gone to the, I haven't gone to 4K yet, so I don't really know where they're going with all that. Like I, the only 4K movie I own is the apocalypse now because that came in like the super duper rally mm, mm. that came out a couple of years ago. Yep, yep. Um, so, yeah, it's the only 4k I own and I haven't watched it cause I don't have, I'm not equipped for it. Yeah. So I'm not sure, honestly. I, I will say as far as home video goes, I don't think I'm going to buy any disc on 4k just because my Blu-ray collection is well for me, fairly small. I'm sure a lot of people would say it's disgusting. I don't think it compares to yours, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> Mine's but, disgusting. Thank you. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I, I would, to save, I'm a bit ashamed of this. I'm just looking at it right now. But uh, to save space, uh, I put all my physical media movies in these big, um, like, DJ CD cases. Each one oh, holds yeah. maybe, like, so I have maybe 1,600, I would say, is my collection. But a lot of those discs are, like, TV episodes. Okay, so my, yeah. my film collection is probably closer to a little bit over 1,000. Do you have an estimate of what yours would be? Oof. I'd probably say, like... DVDs and Blu-rays, I would say maybe two or three thousand. Nice, and you you keep the, I mean, I used to you know keep all the boxes in good condition and everything. So you you just keep on getting more bookshelves, or you have some I've boxes. Got some, I've had to do some binders. I have like two yes. two hundred and fifty disc binders that are just chock full. There you go. Like if I have a DVD of like I forget like you know I got like Jupiter Ascending for like two bucks at Walmart like I can just keep the disc on that that's fine you know exactly I um <laughs> there's uh someone I follow on Twitter that she's a, a huge uh, physical media uh, collector and if she finds a movie where there's no slip cover she has a uh, allegedly a neighbor that has a lot of slip covers so she'll <laughs> sleep with the guy to get the slip cover. <laughs> Just like more power to her, but I, I just I know, I'm like that. That's commitment to a, a film collection. That's funny. Oh my goodness. Sorry, Dolly, if you're listening, but <laughs> God, I um I was in the city once visiting a friend, and um 
we were walking around and I was sitting on the bottom of someone's stairs, like as if it was getting tossed in the garbage. It was a box of DVD slipcovers. I'm like, oh my god, cool! And she's but like, you're like, you're like only... uh, Charlie. Is the golden ticket in the trash? <laughs> yeah, she was like, you're the only fucking person I know, yeah. or possibly one of the only people in the city right now who would get that excited over a box of empty dvd covers yeah i'm like this is perfect i have somebody that can replace now i mean with the boxes the, the thing i never understood it is um anime companies still do this i think is they'll sell the empty box with volume one of an anime series on i guess blu-ray now is what it would be or maybe 4k yeah and compared to the price of just the disc it's like you're paying 20 extra dollars for cardboard that shiny or like the metal cases, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the steel, uh, steel book. Um, we're getting way off topic here. So why don't we do, you want to do two more? Or you want to do four more? What yeah, do you feel like? We'll do a couple more. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's um, do four. What the fuck? Yeah, let's do it. So I'm thinking, um, uh, so let's see, you did a Chinese one. So big classic movie that was edited to smithereens was, um, Eric Von, another Von Stern, not Von Sternberg, uh, Eric Von Stroheim's greed. Um, this oh, is oh, just sure. one of those, great films one of those great movies and i think it clocked in at something like eight hours which is which mm. is insane but you know eric von stroheim's a hell of a director i would watch an eight hour version of his film so it was cut to like two hours and some change which i mean the the existing version we have is still a pretty stunning film but you can't help but think about what could be or what was and um some people have kind of reconstructed it. There's a lot of um, inner titles and stuff um, kind of patching together and, and still shots and what have you. But uh, it's a it's a fascinating document and um, it's a fascinating film. And if you ever get a chance to watch it, I, I'd highly recommend it, even in, even in its edited state. Um, and it's just this epic tale of, of the titular of the titular implication. It's a tale of greed. Um, this came out in 24, I think. But um, yeah, I mean. You know, infamously, you know, went over budget and over schedule and, you know, it's just this big old thing. And, um, yeah, there's I fi- there's a edit, edit of it on Vimeo, I think, that comes in at, I can tell you in one second. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating film, though. Yeah, so there's a four-hour cut of it. The Greenwood cut, it's called, on Vimeo. That um, I've tried to get through a couple times. It's just sloggy with the still shots and stuff but um better than nothing i guess right definitely um i don't know why the ones i keep on finding to talk about are, are comedies but I, I it's one of my favorite genres i guess a lot of science fiction or horror if you're yeah not totally. that anyone's asking but um <laughs> yeah this is a richard Pryor one uh, directed by uh, a young film student who went on to great things penelope spheris Oh, I love Penelope Spears, yeah. And have you heard about this? Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales? No. Is what it was called. It's a I believe it's a sketch movie. Um was never released. I've I've heard a few different stories. I've heard that um Richard Pryor was looking for uh input on the film and screened it to Bill Cosby, who at the time was huge. I mean, this is sixty nine, right? So this is before uh the the cosby show but bill cosby was a very uh, uh powerful um black comedian or comedian period in in hollywood actor you know had had a lot of pull so um and bill cosby said 
you know, it, on one hand, allegedly he he wanted to, he kind of saw this as competition, right? Richard Pryor is like this this upstart that's doing yeah. this like radical new comedy, and I, I've heard he he bought the rights to it and just never released it. Ah, um, I've also heard that Richard Pryor got high as shit. Uh, yelled at his wife and destroyed the only negative of the film. Ah. And, and yet, the the most current stuff I can find on it, um, off our good friend Wikipedia, is uh, at when um, Pryor was being honored by the DGA in 2005, Spheris provided some footage from Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales that she got a hold of uh, as she was the director of that film. Um, that that was shown in kind of a, a how do you say it like a compilation right of stuff he did yeah. as part of the ceremony and she proceeded to get sued by um, the estate of Richard Pryor which is very litigious so um, and uh, according to Wikipedia Spiris had already at that time thankfully donated the footage to the American to the Academy Film Archive of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Yeah. So, holy moly. Yeah. Uh, so it's it looks like the film was never quite completed. I, I haven't really heard what's in it. Um, I did hear that everyone was doing cocaine as they were trying to edit it. Huh. Fancy that. <laughs> Which was in the, yeah, thought, in the late right? 60s in California, right? Yeah. Who would have thought? But I mean, Pamela V. Spiris, I mean, you want to talk about, I mean, this is a uh, a director, but also a, a female director with a long successful career that nobody seems to give her enough credit. Yeah, because yeah, I mean, you, you really love the decline of Western civilization documentaries, right? About the different. Oh, yeah. Big fan. Um, you know, as just someone who grew up on punk rock, you know, three meals a day from childhood on, it's just like, oof. Like, you can't get any better than that, seeing, you know, Darby Crash make breakfast. I love, she gets these great candid interviews with all these great rock stars and punkers and stuff like that, making breakfast. You know, you get these great Aussie moments as he cook as he's cooking eggs, you know, in part two. Um, and then, you know, Wayne's role. I mean, Penelope Spheris, man, she's, she's, she's awesome. She's great and just doesn't get as much credit as she deserves. Suburbia, that's another great one. Um, and I'm looking at the Richard Pryor one. Yeah, Uncle Tom's Fairy Tales. Unfortunately, the last thing she directed was a, I haven't even heard of this movie, a 2011 uh, comedy called Balls to the Walls. Um, okay, interesting. About an engaged guy forced to take a side job moonlighting as an exotic dancer to pay for a wedding. That sounds terrible. Starring Joe Hursley? Who are these people? I don't even know. Yeah, I don't know where to Richard begin with McDonald that. is in it. I know him. And Antonio Sabato Jr. So, so there's some names in there. But I mean, to... I don't know what it is about like old directors, but in particular, like uh, that at some point, I don't know if it's like director jail or or what have you, but it's just kind of uh, baffling. I'd I'd love to see her do more stuff, um, especially documentaries. I'm a documentary nut, and kind of like uh, we've talked about um, sometimes the making of these like films or these documentaries are, are better than the actual stuff that came out that it's talking about. Oh, indeed. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, with, uh, recently like, uh, with, uh, uh, the other side of the wind, there's this great documentary Hopper Wells. I actually haven't seen it 
but I'm a huge Wells fan as well as a Dennis Hopper fan, so it's natural that uh, that's a sought-after item. But yeah, it's basically just riffing between Don Dennis Hopper and Orson Welles for like, you know, just this great canon footage that they caught because so much of The Other Side of the Wind. Have you seen it yet? I haven't seen the movie. I saw um, I saw a little bit of it, and it was just, I wasn't in the right mindset. It was like right before I was going to bed. Uh, oh, but yeah, I've been meaning to. I did see the documentary on it that was on Netflix, and that was excellent. Yeah. They'll love me when I'm dead. Yeah, it's uh, oh, that's a whole. I mean, again, equally fascinating. And yeah, like I said, with uh, other side of the wind, we've got like what three documentaries just sprouting <laughs> from it. Yeah, in yeah. one one or two years, you know what I mean. Not, not to mention what? the books about it. There's several. Oh yeah, I mean, there's probably more books on Orson Welles than there are mm. one else <laughs> in the film world, I guess, or interviews too. Oh my goodness. Um, I love Orson Welles, but the way he's still revered in film schools is kind of. There's more people than Orson Welles, I'll just put it that way. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's funny though, because the films they revere, Citizen Kane, obviously magnificent film, um, but like you get the, the, the farther you get, the better you get like chimes of midnight effort fake. He's just way ahead of his time. And, and, and these kind of like, just these, like, uh, just this loose cannon, uh, Maverick way, which I always really admire, you know, they should be teaching like the trial. You know what I mean? Not yeah. like Kane, you know. Well, like I'm a big Shakespeare nut. Wells did so much Shakespeare. I I do wonder yeah. had uh, Wells lived longer and, and been in better health, um, what he would have thought of Kenneth Branagh, or just kind of fantasizing about the two of them working together. Oh, or like yeah, like Kenneth Branagh producing a Wells film, or you know, yeah, yeah, yeah kind of like a, a coolest thing, kind of like a AI kind of thing, right? Like the yeah, Kubrick it thing. would be so great. Um, yeah, it just it makes me wonder. But yeah, the the Wells rep, the Wells references, you know, I understand, but it's also like I think, um, you know, maybe no, I don't want to say move on, but do something different. You know, I I think you, uh, if you if I was a bit but young budding cinephile, I think I'd get much more excited over Chimes of Midnight or Othello than um, you know Kane. But you know, I'm also a little jaded and older too, so. I guess that's another thing, but yeah, the the I, I know what you mean though the the Wells uh, cult. So I mean, let's each do one more movie, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, cool. W- what's your last one? I am gonna. So this is a movie that was cut that I don't think we'll really get to see. I'd love to see it, but um, so Kurosawa directed a lot of great films. He's got this block in the forties and fifties that doesn't get a lot of mention um i live in fear is one of his films scandal is a really good one um and then he did dostoevsky's the idiot which is this like wintry nightmare of a film it's it's really beautiful it's it's long um and it, but it works it works quite well it's not entirely perfect and one of the reasons why it's not entirely perfect is because the studio you know cut the living hell out of it and I think the original version of um, of Kurosawa's The Idiot like, clocked in at like three and a half hours. Um, the existing film is pretty terrific. It came out in 51, I believe. And um, yeah, I think it was over, it was nearly over three hours that initially. It was cut to 100 minutes. Um, and I think right now it's stor- it was restored to like 160 minutes. Um, so it would be cool because, I mean, 20 minutes doesn't sound like much, but it's huge, you know, coming down to it. Um, so I think that's the difference between the original cut and the cut we have today. 
Uh, it would be great to see. Oh wait, so there's no express. So the original cut was 265 minutes, so that's well over three hours. Um, yeah, but according to like film scholars, Donald Ritchie and Alex Cox, who's a big Kurosawa nut, um, we shouldn't hold our breath for it, which is too bad because I really am a big fan of. I mean, it's Kurosawa, of course, who isn't a big fan. Um, I'm a, but I'm a big fan of kind of his uh, lesser seen works. And this the Idiot's a really interesting film that I think uh, a lot of people have overlooked, unfortunately. But I would recommend people check it out. It's probably on Filmstruck or, I'm sorry, Criterion Channel. Yeah, I'm really uh, jealous of my aunt. We both were big Kurosawa fans. And one year for her birthday, uh, her husband got her the uh, infamous Criterion uh Kurosawa set with like nearly oh, all his movies, man. and it's on eBay that's going for close to a thousand bucks now. They're their DVD. It's not Blu-ray. It might have been like a thirty film set or a twenty film set, something like that. Yeah, but yeah I think for a like... while most of his early stuff, like what you were just talking about, like you couldn't get in the United States, or if you did, it was like a VHS that was out of print and looked like shit. And, yeah, and this some, had uh, had just about everything yeah. except for like some of the Warner Brothers stuff, like uh, um, Dreams, or right, the, the right. weird one where Richard Gere is playing a half Japanese dude. Rhapsody in August, yeah, that's an yeah. interesting one. Oof, I, yeah, I had it's 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 okay, but Richard Gere, uh, <laughs> the makeup to make him Asian, is uh, less convincing than the makeup in. Um, Oh, uh, in the in the James Bond movie where Sean Connery has to go undercover oh, as a boy, Japanese yeah. man. Ah, you only live twice, I think. Yeah, that's yeah, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the eyebrows. Oh, that's a whole other conversation, right? Oh, yeah, oh. Really. yeah, yeah. But yeah, like the early Kurosawa films, like I've got um, like some imports I had to order on eBay, of, like Sanjiro Sugata. Sure, his sure. First film. And like talk about a first debut. I mean, holy shit, it's great. But uh, these are obviously laser disc scans laser i think had a bigger run in asia than it did here so a lot of early no definitely and and there's um even to date with some of this stuff that like maybe in the in the u.s we only got on videotape uh there's stuff that's like america like um uh, english language movies that only got laser disc releases like in japan or in uh in china and so forth yeah it I never knew someone with a laser disc. I, I've never seen I've got one. A laser disc in... player. It's interesting, yeah. Huh. Would you say the video quality is that much better? I've heard the video is not really, but the sound was really good. The sound is really good, and you had separate audio channels. You could do, do like digital, analog, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it also is the birth of commentaries, which is pretty cool. Sure, sure, um, right. It, it has menus, yeah. It was a big thing. Yeah, it, it really is like that in-between of... Of VHS and DVD, like mm-hmm. it's it's a, it's a definitely an improvement on VHS, and like you could throw a laser disc on and be confused between that and like a, a crappy early run DVD. You know what I mean? Like if you put like a Snapcase DVD in your player, it wouldn't look too far off from a, from laser your laser disc uh, version. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a lovely um, laser disc story in one of my favorite filmmaker memoirs of all time. I wish he'd do a second one. Uh, Robert Rodriguez's Rebel Without a Crew. Have you read that one? Oh, no, that sounds great. And it, it, so it's from him uh, making films as a kid to uh, El Mariachi, I think, up through Desperado, maybe. Um, so, oh, so, I mean, cool. really, really early in his career. And and he talks about he, you know, just moved to L.A. and 
has no money and all and he got his first um paycheck to i don't know if it was to write the script for desperado or something like that and he spent it on a laser disc player and the aliens like two disc uh, uh the aliens nice. big 150 dollar box set or whatever the hell they charge for it <laughs> and that's all he had in his like little apartment um it, it's, oh, it's, it's probably a, the best thing ever though yeah yeah it was an excellent uh, really cool read um uh, about his uh you know kind of low budget innovations and and robert rodriguez i mean still to this day in, in uh, austin texas where he mainly lives um learned how to do film composing <laughs> he does editing he does the dp he does uh oh, cool. <laughs> like it, it, to me that that's really inspiring the kind of one-man band thing um oh it's so awesome yeah with this topic of unreleased films you know my last choice is I, it, it's it's like a sequel eh, i'd say like a spin-off so um i i do like books and stuff by um controversial author brett easton ellis and oh, yeah. there is a film called rules of attraction ah ha ha did you ever see it? It was like a a, a college set movie, very dark. Uh, one of the characters yes. in there is technically the younger brother of the main character from American Psycho. James Vanderbeek, right? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's really good yeah. in it, really. Um, yeah, he's pretty good, yeah. I, the, um, I remember the, the DVD, I <laughs> the DVD has five different commentaries, one of which is from Carrot Top, who has never seen the film before. Ah. And so the whole thing is him going, what the fuck is this movie? What? Like he thought it was going to be American... <laughs> pie or, or something oh my god That's not yet hilarious. kitty i'm almost done with the podcast stop meowing um <laughs> so uh when roger avery w was doing all this uh, there, there's a character in a sequence in the film uh kip pardue plays the character of victor this kind of um model and he he goes to europe for a sequence in the film and it, it's this crazy kind of montage well when they were filming that uh they went for maybe like a month or so and in and uh, Kit Purdue was in character as Victor the whole time. And there's footage of him. Like, I don't think this thing can ever be released. He he's shown it to Marilyn Manson and some other uh, friends of his. Um, but it, it it's like, he was like sleeping with, he was like fucking with all these people. And uh, Roger Avery is like filming real sex scenes and doing oh, drugs everywhere. And like, it's this crazy wild, uh, European vacation, for lack of a better word, <laughs> and uh, he cut a feature out of it. And like, due to release forms and like the the X-rated content, like it can never ever be released. Wow. Probably, uh, Avery has described the film as ethically questionable. I think is being polite about it. Um, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, and. Uh, 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 author of the uh, Rules of Attraction book, uh, Brett Easton Ellis, uh, described the film as uh, 90 minutes of Purdue and character seducing women throughout Europe. <laughs> I, I I would like to see it. It's it's, it's pretty nice. Um, yeah, it sounds like be, it. Because they, they filmed it guerrilla style in Europe, uh, I really wonder like what kind of camera they used and stuff. Especially yeah, if they were trying to do what I assume is hidden camera stuff. Right. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It's uh, that's wild, man. Um, and this was filmed in 2001. Um, it, like I said, there's bits and pieces of this in Rules of Attraction. 
but it it's um just That's a glimpse of, of what the whole film is and uh so who the hell knows right right yeah what's, it's, what's it's, gonna happen there's got to be something somewhere you know in a vault or whatever yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe after his death maybe that'll be like the day the clown <laughs> yeah exactly, roger yeah. avery's uh glitterati 20, I mean, 2034 or something yeah well i mean yeah so i mean they went to london amsterdam uh, uh paris munich that's Venice. wild jeez the amsterdam in particular i'd be curious were they just on a drug bender or something? <laughs> yeah. Like oh, oh, it even says in Wikipedia right here what they filmed it on. A PAL Sony PD-150. Oof. So for yeah, those that don't done. know, PAL was um, Europe's version of VHS, and it was at a higher resolution. Mm-hmm. Um, now, before we stop the show, I'm such a nerd. I'm going to look and see what this fucking camera was. Now I'm really curious. If it was like a, a consumer or, or prosumer or because back in 2001, you had some stuff. No, I mean, OK, so th- this was not a cheap camera. I've seen some people are selling them nowadays used for two hundred fifty dollars. That's not bad, really. Um, but just yeah, looking yeah. at the lens, it's like a three three CCD chip uh, Sony um, back then and, and still now, I think, makes pretty good video cameras as long as you uh start paying a lot of money for it yeah yeah i don't think think their cheap stuff is that good oh it has xlr plugins on the side listeners don't care about this anyhow (laughs) interesting um (laughs) so yeah i I hope you uh, listeners you've enjoyed this episode and uh, remember to uh on Facebook, like our Facebook page, SequelCast2. We post about episodes every week on there. Uh, follow the show on Twitter at SequelCast2. Um, on Apple Podcast or Google Podcast, your favorite podcast app, please leave us a review. Uh, all of that helps with our uh, downloads and visibility. We'd greatly appreciate it. And uh, go on Twitter. Uh, I'm at uh, M-A-T-W-B-T. Um, currently I'm working, uh, it's been a few years, but I'm still working on the volumes two and three of my, uh, books about the films of Uwe Boll. And I, I do freelance writing, uh, as it is recording for Fanatical and, uh, Harper Game One. Alex? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Crab Nebula1914 and pop down to my YouTube channel, uh, The Trailer Project. There's uh, trailer commentaries and a bunch of fun, weird, experimental videos, of which there will be many, many more. Excellent. So um, until next time, uh, this is Matt. This is Alex. Saying, Lost but not gone forever. Seven people have seen this in the entire world because it's locked up in a vault. Now, what story have you heard about why it's locked up in a vault? All right, there's several stories I've heard. Yeah. First one being that Jerry's financing fell through and that there's about half a million dollars that Jerry owes someone or the production company owes someone, and therefore they can't release it. That's the number one. The second story I heard was that that the movie's so horrible that no one will release it. Come on.